Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Inside Infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer and I'm joined as always by my co-host Ilya Zak from our series sponsor, PwC Australia. Ilya, how are you going? I'm well, Adrian. Happy to be back with another episode after a little break for the election. Although having taken that break, I kind of wish I'd gotten in on some of the last minute betting opportunities. Seems like the bookies were as surprised as the media was with the outcome. Uh, it certainly wasn't the outcome the media were projecting or the punters, I guess. It wasn't at all. Um, with that in mind, though, leaving aside the, uh, the wider tax and welfare-based policy differences, does, uh, does IPA have any thoughts on what this election outcome means for the infrastructure sector? Uh, so it's interesting. The, the projects were actually, there was a high degree of consensus between the parties. They were unusually bipartisan. I guess it reflects that the Commonwealth is a, a funder of projects rather than an initiator of projects. They, they do what the states have available, the states deliver infrastructure. So for the most part, um, there actually wasn't that much difference between the parties on a project basis of some, some differences at the margins. Maybe some policy differences? Policy differences there were. So there was a big push from um, the Labour Party around um, electric vehicles and the policy implications of those. They had a, a target of 50% of sales of, um, a non-mandated target, 50% of sales of electric vehicles by 2030. Um, set against a coalition that had a, a, a different view, a more of a market-led view around that. Um, there was also um, some differences around energy policy that we're, we're all familiar with. Um, I think that's a challenge that this parliament has got to deal with. It's one that should be bipartisan. It's one that we need to correct is the, the um, a settled energy policy one that um, the sector can respond to. And it's something that um, Kerry Schott spoke about in great length on the podcast we did with her that um, we need a good policy, but but we need a policy and it needs to be settled. Interesting, interesting. Well, there's uh, there's never a slow week in government in Australia. And with that in mind, we've got the uh, Victorian budget coming up later this week. Uh, they delayed it, I believe, to avoid the federal election campaign. And we had the good fortune of speaking with the Victorian treasurer, Tim Pallas, a few weeks ago, just as it was being finalised. He's a very interesting member of parliament in Victoria. And so without further ado, here's our chat with treasurer Tim Pallas. So Treasurer Tim Pallas, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Um, we'll begin with, uh, I, I'm a big Formula One fan, and um, I'd just like to know why you called five-time world champion and racing legend Lewis Hamilton a dickhead. Well, that was a, a strange confluence of events. Uh, as Roads Minister, I had on that very day released a uh, online media uh, campaign aimed at young people um, and a micro a micro uh, a directed media campaign through uh, the internet uh, which was basically don't be a dickhead uh, to young men who were hooning on the roads uh, unfortunately for for me I was on radio uh, with 3aw that day promoting it uh, which happened to be the very same day after Lewis Hamilton had been caught. Uh, so what, he hooning. drove away from the circuit and... He'd breached our hooning laws by uh, basically losing traction and um, going at speed uh, uh, to the general uh, merriment of the uh, crowd of young men who were uh, assembled. So uh, on Neil Mitchell that, uh, that next day, well, you're launching this campaign... Um, uh, would you use the very same word that you've used in your campaign to describe Lewis Hamilton? <laughs> I said, oh, look, I don't think we really should get into to that, should we? Uh, we've got to be nice. This is uh, broadcast media. 
And uh, he said, no, no, if you're co- courageous enough to say it then, why won't you say it now? I said, well, okay, I'll say it. Um, he was a dickhead. Um, <laughs> uh, and I got very nasty letters from my uh, English relatives, uh, my British relatives, who said I had a potty mouth. And I tried to explain <laughs> the context to them but uh, it was all lost on them. Uh, but, you, but I did make front page uh, news in uh, the UK. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's a claim a, to that's fame. That's an achievement. Yeah, we'll it must have been there. coordinated. An unreconstructed <laughs> colonial. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the calling Lewis Hamilton that you know, obviously a high point in the career. But maybe you could talk to us about how you got there. So, how did you get into politics, and how did it all start? Well, sort of accidental in a way. Um, I, I studied uh, law, arts law at. Uh, ANU. And, and you're, you're from Newcastle, New South Wales. I'm from Wales, Newcastle originally. Uh, and then uh, at the age of 17 and a bit, I moved down to um, uh, Canberra to study uh, arts law. I had a great interest in public administration um, and it was the area that I wanted to get involved in. And I figured that ANU offered a, a good administrative law and public administration grounding. So I um, studied there for... Um, five and a half, six years. Uh, at the end of that, I applied for a job with a very small union, the Federal Firefighters Union. I became their sole industrial employee um, uh, and they looked after airport firefighters and um, uh, also uh, the civil brigade in the ACT. Were you, were you drawn to that because it was a union or were you were just looking for a job? No, I was uh, drawn to it because of my uh, affection for the union movement, right. largely because of um, my engagement with unions, largely through holiday jobs. Um, okay. you know, every three or four months break you get at the end of the year, you have to drum up a bit of income so that you can help your family support you at uh, university mm. and that's what I did. So I worked in a meatworks, I worked in a steelworks uh, and uh, I, I was very strongly committed to the principles of unionism. Um, so after that, I got got the job with the Federal Firefighters Union, stayed there a little while and then uh, was offered a job with the uh, Stormont and Packers Union and I worked for them for uh, uh, close to a decade and became their Assistant National Secretary uh, and uh, shortly after becoming their Assistant National Secretary, maybe a year, a uh, year and a half, I was offered the job of Assistant Secretary of the ACTU Took that job on. Um, then Steve. What, what year are we talking for, for the ACT year on? Uh, 1995. Right. Um, and uh, uh, sorry, 1997 for the ACTU. Uh, by 1999, I uh, was offered a job with Steve Brax as his acting chief of staff um, uh, in opposition. Um, I thought it was a, a strange career move considering that I'd thought it was a long shot that Steve would win the uh, 99 election campaign against Jeff Kennett, but he was a good friend and... Uh, Steve uh, also thought he was a long shot, didn't he? No. Uh, <laughs> he will He will say to this very day that he uh, he was always confident that he was right. going to be able to get there. It's I, an easy one with hindsight. Though, isn't uh, it? <laughs> I, for my part, never thought he was a, a done deal, but uh, it was great working with him. He had great political instincts, but also a a generous personality and uh, great values. So I enjoyed working with him. Uh, when, of course, uh, we won uh, the 99 election campaign, uh, I was uh, on uh, 
a secondment from the ACTU, so I had the opportunity to go back, should I wish, uh, and uh, uh, I decided that this was too much fun, um, sort of working with uh, Steve Brax and a government of young ministers who uh, were learning the ropes, so we learnt the ropes together. It was most of our, uh, in fact, I don't think there was a minister in that government that had uh, been a minister before, so we were basically learning the ropes together. And uh, you'd be pretty rare in that you went from a chief of staff job straight into being an MP and into cabinet, is that? That's right, right? yep. In fact, uh, I was sworn in as a minister before I'd been declared as the member for uh, Tarnit <laughs> uh, that I'd run for. And uh, apparently that's all kosher. So I suppose the, uh, to get to the uh, point of the question, how did I get into politics? Inadvertently. Um, mm. I'd pretty much well uh, marked out my career as being a career uh, in the labour movement and the trade union movement in particular. So uh, industrial relations was the, was the key interest for you and the key uh, draw into politics? It was and it remains a, a great passion of mine. I'm now the Minister for Industrial Relations and I genuinely believe in cooperative workplace relations and right. I believe that representatives of workers can add considerably to uh, the capacity and the performance of companies provided everybody works in a cooperative way and there's a general recognition that uh, the workforce deserve uh, a fair uh, a day's pay for a fair day's work. So there's an interesting, uh, interesting thing that you mentioned there, which is, um, and, and it draws on, I think, some of your experience during a very formative period for industrial relations in Australia, negotiating the accord through the, the Hawke-Keating years. Um, that was in a, a bit of a liberalisation of industrial relations policy in Australia, but in, in, in effect, led by the union movement. Um, you know, that it's a a non-traditional kind of bipartisan reform exercise. Can you see something like that happening today? Look, I hope that we can get back to a period where the idea of tripartism uh, becomes serious. Um, certainly the idea of uh, government and labour working closely together, um, uh, organised labour, I think that is vitally important to the long-term uh, future and prospects of this country in terms of being able to reach our productivity uh, imperative, uh, but also recognising that uh, you sit around the table with, from a position of mutual respect. So the Andrews government's actually been quite a reforming government, but it's quite relatively small scale type reforms with the sale of the port, which I think are, they're very substantial, but they're not like these whole economy wide things. It does feel like reform at a national level hasn't really happened since, well, certainly for the last decade, there's not been a great deal of reform. Is that just and where we are on the on the curve, or well, I, I do worry a bit uh, about it. I think there is cause for concern in the sense that we can't simply uh, sit back and assume that the next great initiative around reform uh, is going to simply happen. Uh, mm. It requires a fair degree of hard work, commitment, and might I say, a willingness to to make hard decisions. I do think, uh, you know, the sort of big reforms that we saw out of the Hawke-Keating government, uh, the big reforms that we saw uh, coming out of uh, the Rudd and Gillard government, particularly around infrastructure and infrastructure planning, uh, all those seem to have been forgotten and uh, everything seems to be about getting an announcement out that... Uh, uh, achieves uh, uh, a decent front page. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting point actually, because you know we're joking about the Lewis Hamilton thing, obviously, but that's the 
that's well, it's the only the, time you made the papers in the UK. I, exactly, that's the thing. That's the if it's that's the soundbite. <laughs> I mean, you can discuss policy at length, um, but if you call Lewis Hamilton something again, that's probably the bit that's going <laughs> to yep. make it to the papers. Do you think that? Do you think that it's uh, it's maybe the media environment that that makes it that much more challenging? Oh well, I don't. I don't want to criticise the media in the sense that I think that like they're in a business and. Uh, they're in the business of selling papers and politicians need to understand that they're um, as much a product as they are uh, in the business of delivering public policy. Right. Um, so, yes, I often um, complain in private moments about what I see as being uh, harsh treatment by the media. Uh, what I do think, however, is ultimately we have to be able to sell our message. We have to be able with a fair degree of courage to be able to get out there and uh, stand up to the harsh questioning that we might not like but uh, is a necessary part of a functioning democracy. So for my part, yeah, I think uh, it would be better if we could turn the, uh, the, the column inches into a much more substantive policy debate or a genuine assessment of how uh, each side is, of politics is performing. I read recently from a journalist that the job of journalism is to um, uh, hold governments to account. And I think that's a legitimate uh, way of looking at it. But if you look at it exclusively that way, the practical consequence is all you're doing is focusing all your effort on, on the, the negatives and the negatives, absolutely, and not on how an opposition is performing and how they might perform as a, an aspiring government. It's about trying to even up the contest. Yeah. Uh, I would see the job as holding all politicians yeah. to account uh, rather than – and balance in reporting should necessarily be not giving equal airtime to a preposterous proposition. Yeah, um, couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah, the interpretation of balance is a – it's a funny one. It's you've got, a, you've got an absurd argument and a good argument you give them 50-50 and yeah. it's a bit – you know, that's not actually balanced. That's that's an unbalanced. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about Werribee? I don't know it well. So uh, well, it's a, a great uh, community. It's uh, in the local government area of Wyndham, and it's uh, uh, the fastest or one of the fastest growing uh, local government areas in the country. They uh, all claim that, though, don't they? Uh, they do, and uh, <laughs> they have uh, very animated debates about whether it's in percentage terms That's or right. absolute terms. <laughs> um, but uh, I think we could safely say with a, a growth rate of around about 7%, it's, pretty high. Uh, it's, uh, it's growing enormously. Yep. And uh, is, that, or, is that as commuters, people commuting into Melbourne? So or? about, uh, yeah, there's a lot, about uh, 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 70% of the workforce uh, in Wyndham uh, commute on the roads to another local government area to uh, go to their workplace. Uh, and the population of Wyndham is now bigger than the population of Geelong. So it's big getting uh, bigger quickly. How did you land in that electorate? Well, it was uh, essentially as a consequence of uh, me wanting to run for uh, parliament, um, Steve Brax, suggesting that uh, I was a good fit. I, I wanted to represent the western suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, I've, I've lived in the western suburbs of Melbourne all my uh, adult life and consequently I, I uh, certainly didn't uh, see a lot of time or opportunity um, in the upper house. 
no criticism of our friends in the upper house, but I want it to be in the bear pit of politics, which is uh, the lower house. Parliament. Absolutely. Um, before we get into specific policy things, um, I'm interested by the combination of industrial relations and treasurer. It would seem to me as an outsider that you might want to split those two things up so that you can externalise the potential conflict that exists from different ministerial portfolios. Is my conception wrong? Uh, and how do you deal with the internalised conflict if my perception's right? Well, it's... Um it, it's a, a, a real problem in the sense that you do have to compartmentalise uh, your responsibilities. But, of course, added to industrial relations uh, uh, and treasurer is economic development as well. So my job uh, principally is to make sure that the government not only has a, a good balance sheet uh, but is budgeting well. That is, we're looking beyond the things that we're dealing with today to deal with the capacity to manage downturns in, in revenue, uh, to manage uh, opportunities as they present themselves to the government, hence uh, um, uh, economic development as a portfolio, but also to recognise that our work, workforce constitute uh, over 40% of our output expenditure uh, in terms of wages. So we need to also have a good relationship with them and uh, to make the right choices about whether we employ how much more we employ to provide the services of the fastest growing uh, city and state in the nation, um, but also to ensure that we give the workforce a, a fair uh, return on their labour as well. So, so why so, Treasury are the best paid bureaucrats? Uh, well, I, only, <laughs> I wish they were. In fact, um, uh, well, I suppose I'm not a bureaucrat. Um, and no, I don't wish you were. I like you working as uh, hard and efficiently as you are at the moment. <laughs> But I think that's uh, a tough conversa internal conversation that you have to have with yourself daily, isn't it? <laughs> well, true, and it's part of uh, what being a treasurer is, because particularly a Labor treasurer, um, uh, I don't see my job as inhibiting the hopes and the expectations, the plans yeah. that ministers uh, have. But I also recognise that uh, the hardest thing for Labor governments is uh, to have to say no, uh, and it's not because you want to but it's because you need to um, uh, recognise that you've got to back the most important imperative uh, and, might I say, well-structured proposals uh, and find the funds to ensure that they come to reality. Um, you can't say yes to everything. So that's a very – that's a, it's, a, it's something that we wanted to ask you about. You've, you've come from, I guess, the biggest spending portfolio. Mostly you've, you've, through your career you've been the, an infrastructure guy and now you're the – the, the one writing the checks? Or the one which, saying no. Or the one saying no. Which one's more fun? Oh, look, um, Treasury's a lot of fun, but uh, building infrastructure, you, you, you couldn't pass it up, I think. Um, and I, I, I don't say that as a frustrated infrastructure minister. Uh, in fact, we've got great infrastructure, uh, a great infrastructure minister in uh, Jacinto Allen for transport infrastructure. But I say it because I think, uh, look, People recognise governments for what they do, and that's the trademark of this government. Uh, as Treasurer, uh, you're part of the enablement process, uh, providing the wherewithal and making sure that the, the plans 
that are being uh, proposed to be prosecuted to deliver infrastructure are done as efficiently, cost efficiently, but also efficiently in time as is possible. So it's not my job to, to second guess infrastructure ministers in what they do, but I do on occasion look with uh, uh, a, 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 a twinge of uh, jealousy at the uh, great job that they're doing and to recognise that as a government, uh, you accounted for what you do on infrastructure, how you build it, how you deliver it, and what you choose is a vital part of that mix as well. So uh, I think uh, as a government, the planning that we put into this, the assessment of uh, what is important and when should it be built mm -hmm. is a critical part of good governance and finding the capacity to do it, making sure that you're prepared to look at a range of funding options uh, in order to ensure not only that you can deliver it efficiently, but that you've got a good relationship with the private sector so you can leverage greater effort. So talking of the capacities, you've got a budget coming up at the very end of this month, um, first one of this new term this new parliament. Um, I guess it's, uh, um, this will be your fifth? This will be my fifth budget, Fifth budget. budget. Yes. Um, most of the preceding four have been in a period of sort of growth in the housing market. There's been relatively strong revenue flows. Um, this one may be in a slightly more challenging environment, more global and domestic headwinds. Um, challenges in that to find the capacity to keep funding the infrastructure for growth? Oh, yeah. I think it's uh, we can't um, uh, overdo this, but I think um, without sugarcoating sugar it, I've said to the uh, uh, community that this will be a budget of hard choices. The one thing that people can uh, be assured about is that this government will deliver on its election commitments. Um, and uh, on top of that, we need to recognise that good governments are defined by how they manage uh adversity and the hard times, uh, not necessarily by how they dole out the uh, uh, the benefit of providence. Um, and I think this government has done well to uh, pick up uh, a state that was not performing particularly well. I think we were the fifth rated, rated state uh, in terms of economic performance by Comsec when we came to government. We've lifted it now to the first uh, equal first apparently with New South Wales this quarter but for th the two quarters preceding that the first and best performing state in the nation uh, and we've done it in in a sense that we've uh, substantially improved the uh, performance uh, uh, the economic performance of the state our GDP growing at 3.5 percent the nation growing at 2.6 you're in a difficult position as a state treasurer because you have all the responsibility for delivering infrastructure but you don't really have any substantial taxing powers. The taxes that you have are... They're set in stone, then, more or less. It, the, 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 they're the main they're volatile and, and there's not a lot you can do on the... you know, on the, the GST and... I mean, the upside of the budget. What do you think of that? That puts you in a hard place. Oh, well, I think that uh, if uh, I'd have had uh, an opportunity to uh, recast the way that the Federation operates, particularly how the Constitution is interpreted by the mm. High Court, I would say that you probably should put the taxing responsibilities with those who are charged with the responsibility for delivering the service, you know, the classic horizontal fiscal equalisation problem. Um, but the truth is uh, uh, it is what it is and there's no point complaining about it. you just got to get on and do what you can. Well, yes. so in, in, this, in this period now, particularly with the 
um, a federal election coming up. There's going to be it's going to be a lot of from both sides. There'll be a lot of announcements. I mean, we've already seen um, some of them particularly supporting Victorian infrastructure. And in the past, you've lamented the lack of announcements in Victoria well, as well. Um, they got to keep them coming. Would be my uh, advice, Adrian. I mean, uh, how, how do you get their support though? Uh, for infrastructure, yeah. How, how, how do you, you know, how do you decide on which projects you'd like support for? How do you decide how much you want them to put in? Well, it's uh, it's uh, an exercise in advocacy as much as anything else. Firstly, um, government, the government that's required to deliver the infrastructure, which is uh, the state government, uh, has to get on and identify where their priorities lie. Then we have to be able to lobby the Commonwealth in a way that's effective, uh, sometimes by demonstrating that we're bringing cash to the table as well Mm -hmm. in a partnership to deliver these projects. Um, uh, By all means, an assessment by uh, infrastructure body like Infrastructure Australia, Infrastructure Victoria helps the case, but doing your preparation around um, how we rate these pieces of infrastructure and how we prioritise them in, in the context of what we accept is a finite pool of funds. But from my, our perspective, Victoria has done pretty uh, poorly in terms of allocations out of the Commonwealth. Uh, we got down as low, I think, as about uh, 7% of national uh, infrastructure funding. I think uh, um, over the uh, next, uh, and by the way, the state is now on about 17.7% of mm-hmm. national infrastructure funding, still a long way short of the 26% of our population share. And really what that tells us is uh, we've got to this strange situation where everybody uh, fixates about the Commonwealth government, but they're not driving this bus um, when it mm. comes to infrastructure. That's the funny thing, though, that, it, you know, in some instances they'll contribute 50%, in some instances 20%. And I, um, we had actually had Anthony Albanese on a couple of episodes ago and you know, his suggestion was that you should start with 50-50 and it's as good a suggestion as any, but it's 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 difficult to see how through that negotiation process how you settle on whatever the number, the final number is. Well, the days are gone, of course. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember roads of national importance uh, right. where the Commonwealth were funding, you know, 90% of some country roads. Uh, and even Anthony Albanese, classic illustration and a great infrastructure minister, uh, in the uh, uh, Rudd-Gillard government, uh, uh, they put in uh, uh, the lion's share of the contribution towards regional rail link, yeah. uh, a uh, vitally important project that uh, if that investment hadn't been made, uh, the state of Victoria would not have been able to deliver it. In contrast, the state Victorian government uh, is delivering, well, $13.6 billion worth of infrastructure this year alone and will deliver $10.6 billion of infrastructure each and every year going forward. We're delivering it by uh, getting on and doing the work and cutting the ribbons and delivering the infrastructure so we can grow our economy, grow jobs, over 450,000 jobs created in this uh, state in the four years that we've been in government. One of the things that's underpinned that, of course, has been the sale of the port, the sale of the um, the long-term leasing of the port, the long-term leasing of the land titles services. Um, strikes me that um, political persuasions aside, the New South Wales Liberal government and the Victorian Labor government have played broadly from the same playbook there on you know releasing capital from legacy assets and investing it 
in new infrastructure. Does that mean you've got more in common with a, a New South Wales state treasurer than you've got um, with a, a Commonwealth treasurer of any persuasion? Uh, well, we have many things in common. I mean, state governments are about service delivery and delivering infrastructure, but our values are very, very different, uh, as you'd appreciate. But uh, it all comes down to the balance sheet at the end of the day, because if you can't, if you can't provide uh, those great ministers in your government, and we've got plenty of them in the Andrews government, if you can't provide them with the wherewithal to go on and deliver the policy agenda of the government, the social agenda of the government, uh, uh, but more importantly, the services that the community expects of us, then uh, if the balance sheet doesn't work, then the government doesn't work for the people, uh, in my view. And uh, Can I just uh, drill into that a little bit? The balance, you know, it, as, as a Treasury, you probably would have noticed that um, governing is a hell of a lot easier when there's unlimited money coming in. You know, when, there's, when, the, budget, when the budget is booming... Decisions are easier to make. In in New South Wales and Victoria's case, in particular, um, stamp duty is coming off right now quite substantially with the reduction in in uh, real estate transactions. Um, how's that going to How's that going to affect um, the Victorian budget? How's it going to Can you see any any reforms coming out of that? Is there an opportunity in that? to, to um, go ahead with some reforms to stamp duty and you probably know what I'm hinting at. Oh, well, I mean, uh, yes, we are seeing a, a, a downturn in uh, stamp duty receipts and that's due to a, a downturn both in terms of price, about uh, just short of 10% uh, below the uh, uh, the high of November 2017. When I uh, bought my house when you bought your house. in November uh, 2017. Yes. Strategic right investing. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I think I've suffered the same fate in the past, so um, I, I feel your pain. Yeah. But uh, we're also seeing that there is a, a very significant downturn in volume, and that probably hurts more. Yeah. I think uh, REIV estimated at about uh, 35% downturn in volume. And that kind of volatility is makes managing the budget substantially more difficult, doesn't it? Well, it does, and we've already announced uh, uh, one write-off uh, in the uh, in the uh, mid-year budget update, um, and I've been clear that there are more to come in the uh, in the uh, budget itself. Um, so there are a couple of points that I would make uh, by way of um, uh, a consolation to people. Firstly, we planned for this. We didn't simply um, uh, hope to wander into uh, a, a flood of funds forever. Uh, and we've been putting those funds to work and we've also been putting ourselves in a strong economic position. Um, uh, for people who own property and they're seeing their property prices drop down, can I console you by saying that in the last six years, if you owned a property in metropolitan Melbourne, uh, your property will have increased by about 50%. Um, uh, now, yes, uh, there will be some uh, uh, correction in, in the market and it's happening now. Uh, but I think in the long term, people will be well served by the properties that they own. But, but this this cyclical volatility in stamp duty, it just makes your job and every treasurer, state treasurer's job, um, besides the ACT, per perennially difficult because you're trying to second guess the cycles of the market. With, with, with How's the ACT? Well, they've moved 
over 20 years they're moving to, over, to, to land tax years, yep, in 20 years um, time so the, so a treasurer in 20 years time <laughs> yep. in in the ACT yep. will be presented with a much more stable yes um is there an opportunity you, to do don't reform? Have, uh, the capacity to raise payroll tax against their biggest employer, and also there are there are uh, a state government and a local council in, in effect. So there's some sort of so advantages there. Rates. They're a unique, they're a unique situation. Mm-hmm. But the, I guess the, it's uh, it's it's we're not we're not treading new ground here. It's, the, the the debate about stamp duty and land tax land tax is pretty well worn. Um, you know, it, it's in the Henry review. Stamp duty, very inefficient tax. Land tax is usually proposed as the as the um, recommended alternative um, or the replacement for it. Can you see any pathway to that in in, in the larger states in Australia, well, including I, Victoria, obviously? First, first thing I'd say is um, every government needs to make sure that they've got sufficient capacity within their budgets to do the things that they've they're doing at the moment and the things they plan to do. Uh, and we've gone to great efforts through our, um, what I call our fiscal parameters, the road rules of how we manage our budget, not to spend more than we earn um, and to demonstrate that over the economic cycle. Um, secondly, keep debt below the level we inherited for anything other than intergenerational investment. Uh, and thirdly, to make sure that we deliver consistently surpluses. Now, um, what does that mean uh, in terms of the need for reform? I think we all have to accept that uh, as governments, we need to look at ways that we can reform the system. But the idea that you uh, basically um, move towards a uh, across-the-board tax uh, on uh, the private home, which is what is being assumed here, I think uh, is something that... uh, every politician uh, will tread warily on because people will be very concerned about what that means and they'll need to, they would need to be well and truly assured that that would be offset by other taxes that they would otherwise have to pay. Aren't they already paying that tax but in a big upfront chunk when they buy Stamp the duty. Yeah. Well, it's an argument but it's an argument that I think uh, uh, Economists will say from all rational points of view uh, should be uh, self-evident. But for people who manage budgets week to week, uh, it's a much more uh, compelling concern that they're um, uh, confronted with the idea that they actually have to uh, pay a tax that didn't exist before. Once every seven years and you make a choice uh, when you sell, Mm -hmm. uh, you take into account the cost of stamp duty. Uh, but every year you'll know under that sort of regime that you have to pay land tax. Uh, and I think the population would need to be well and truly convinced, as would I, that uh, moving to that in a uh, an immediate and across-the-board sense uh, is a good thing. I, I don't think it is. I think it would be uh, against the interests of people who are already struggling to make ends meet. We've got... Uh, uh, particularly low levels of wage uh, adjustment at, right across uh, the uh, nation. And I think if we move into a state uh, where the only reform, the only reform, the answer to anything, uh, and you ask most economists, uh, how do we get good microeconomic reform going in this country? Or they say, oh, flip uh, stamp duty into land tax. It's often and that's the first it. response. That's it. I mean, we've got to look beyond uh, our tax base and, and look more towards, well, how do we actually get a greater and more productive community? And, and importantly, that means uh, the choices of infrastructure, delivering infrastructure efficiently, 
better engagement with the uh, private sector around that, that infrastructure delivery. Making sure uh, it's used efficiently. And, you know, going back to those old reforms, you know, the reforms where the Commonwealth and the states worked well together. Let's not forget that it was a Victorian government that came up with the idea of case mix management and our health systems are functioning so much better for it. Or it was the Victorian government working together cooperatively with a coalition federal government, the Howard government, uh, that came up with the uh, 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 replacement for uh, the uh, uh, um, uh, the productivity uh, uh, proposals. So the reform agenda, the national reform agenda. It slipped my mind for a moment. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we have to find how governments at all tiers can work cooperatively. This idea that one tier should do it better than another, I think is uh, uh, it's foolhardy because it distracts us from the important things that we have to do. There's, and a, there's, is, a, there's a very interesting example of that um, of the, the two levels of government working together led by Victoria, which was during the national competition policy, which was embraced here more than well, yeah, more than anywhere else in Australia. Um, you're you're operating under some of the results of that um, of, of of those reforms. And the one that I'm particularly interested in, because it's very unique here, is the franchised trains and um, trams and trams, of course. Although they, um, I believe, in New South Wales, they'll they'll be franchised as well. It's a much more extensive so, network. So yeah. slightly more extensive yeah. network here. Well, uh, they're tram. They're two trams. There's not one on George Street. It's only one tram. <laughs> just make the point that we have the largest tram network by uh, by uh, meterage in the world. That's right. That's and and right. probably the most sophisticated franchises anywhere in the world are certainly comparable to what's happened in the UK. How do you how do you find that um, managing that from a from a government perspective? This service that I mean, rail in it's it's had some difficulties in the UK. The franchising because of, I think it's blamed on the, the separation of of, of um, rolling stock from from the track. But but here it seems to be it it's not even a discussion anymore. Bringing the bringing it back into government, it seems to be working quite well. How do you find it? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a, a, a done deal every time the franchise comes up. Can I make the point that um, we expect uh, um, pretty clear contractual arrangements with our concessionaires? We expect them to meet performance targets, uh, and uh, in the event that they fail to meet performance targets, we expect them to pay a penalty for doing that. But importantly, uh, we have to recognise that we have a responsibility too to assist in the provision of the service, which means making sure that sufficient rolling stock is provided to the network so that they can operate effectively. And um, uh, every concessionaire should recognise that they're not a done deal for an extension on their concession. We will do a public sector comparator uh, against what they're offering. There's Uh, always the threat of taking it away. Yeah, and uh, it's a real threat in the sense that if we don't get improving, uh, uh, consistently improving performance, then we're doing the wrong thing by the taxpayer by not looking at a public sector provided alternative. doesn't mean that um, uh, we're issuing that as a threat. It's just the normal standard operating procedure of this government. Uh, we expect to get value out of the contracts that we strike with the private sector and if we don't get those uh, that value, then we will insist upon uh, a comparison against a public sector provided alternative, 
Uh, the state will run that public sector alternative. Uh, it's about making sure that there's real competition and real value being uh, 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 delivered and might I say also innovation from the concessionaire and I've got to say uh, we, we consistently see that we're getting improvements in the way that the service is being provided. Absolutely. Uh, under the recent uh uh, renegotiation of uh, concession arrangements. We've seen improvements uh, in terms of the way that our metropolitan uh, rail network and tram network is operating, and we expect to see that continue. So, where there's a where you've been able to align the public good outcome with the profit incentive of the concessionaire, you think that drives good outcomes for? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, we, we all basically uh, react to both positive and negative stimulus and um, I think the uh, uh, the ultimate defining uh, uh, assessment of this is not against uh, a perfect world but whether or not uh, we're seeing a clear and demonstrated uh, progress on the delivery of the service. One of Obama's most famous lines, better is good. Yeah, better is good, <laughs> absolutely. The uh, idea is... Uh, you know, no government should uh, fall for the trap of uh, making the good uh, uh, or making the perfect the enemy of the good. Mm. Um, I, we don't have a great deal of time left. I've got a couple of final questions. Just in the last few weeks in the lead up to the federal budget, federal election campaign, out of nowhere, electric vehicles are suddenly a, a, a sort of issue of choice at the national level now. Um, and... The, the discussion appears to be around um, whether we're going to take away people's choice to drive a particular type of vehicle and whether or not they're all going to be electric. But to me, and the, and the potential benefits to the environment—that's that's those yeah. are the two focuses really. But there's a whole host of policy questions that flow out of it, not least of which is 16 billion dollars worth of Commonwealth fuel excise, um, some of which through lots of layers ultimately flows to the states in in infrastructure funding through consolidated How much do you think, Adrian, we get out of that $16 billion? I say it was 7% at the lowest point. But It's more than zero, but it's not, if, well, we take your point. It's not enough. Yeah. Oh, well, don't get me on to uh, grieving about, uh, once again, the High Court uh, knocking off our excise powers and uh, the Commonwealth stepping in and saying, well, thank you, we'll take that and we'll return it to the states, don't you worry, and... Uh, you know, we get a, a, a paltry return on that, uh, but ultimately that's an excise uh, paid for the purposes of improving the quality of the road and transport network. Scott Charlton on, on one of our first episodes made the point that it, the hypothecation discussion has just completely disappeared and it's a very important it's a very important discussion to have, clearly. And now it's, of course, a revenue base that is uh, starting to erode because of... Uh, uh, well, fuel efficiency, mm. firstly, and secondly, because uh, the uh, uh, movement towards hybrid and electric vehicles. Uh, so uh, I'd be pretty pretty clear in saying uh, as a state, uh, we think that fuel excise should be uh, managed and uh, in a way that returns it uh, to to the states in the way that it was intended to be returned. So what about when there's nothing left to return? When all of, when everyone's driving a Tesla, what do we what do we do? Well, um, uh, if everybody's driving a Tesla, we're in a much better world, <laughs> I've got to say. Uh, well, uh, any Elon other Musk electric vehicle, world too. <laughs> this is not a paid advertisement. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, uh, the state government has a uh, very clear target of um, uh, through our Victorian Renewable Energies target, we expect by 2050 we'll get to a 50% reduction 
uh, in emissions and certainly from our perspective, uh, we're taking very tangible steps to get there. Um, I, I mean in the sense of what do we do about the funding task which oh, disappears yeah. once the you're electric... You're worried about the money, not yes. the planet, right? Okay. Oh, well, we're worried about <laughs> worried both, about both. But it's, uh, it's, that's the part that's in the electric car discussion. I think what Adrian was, was, was alluding to is... Um, the environmental benefits are obviously very important and choice is very important, but there is a consequence to having electric cars and mm-hmm. and that is that suddenly a, a, a revenue base that is ostensibly meant for, for roads, whether it's used for that is another discussion, but it, it's going to disappear. Yep. So what, what do we do about it? Well, as a, uh, a non-beneficiary of uh, fuel excise for uh, pretty much, well, uh, its inception once it was taken over by the Commonwealth, I mean, the state of Victoria picks up a share, but a pretty sure. paltry share of, of those allocations. Um, uh, it's probably not so much my problem as it is the Commonwealth's problem to try and fix. Uh, you know, we, we'd be interested in a discussion about how we could ultimately come up with an appropriate uh, uh, way of costing your use of your transport network. Um, There's no doubt about that, but not to the extent of simply fitting people up with another tax. Right. Um, uh, uh, I'd like to uh, think that uh, if the Commonwealth were uh, looking to move into this area, the first thing they'd demonstrate is how they would be removing fuel excise at the same time as they were looking at alternatives uh, around usage. And quite frankly, there are few... uh, coherent strategies around usage uh, that I would feel confident with. For example, uh, you know, a London-style cordon system of charging for road usage um, uh, only disadvantages the transport poor, um, uh, people who have got to travel a long time from the outer suburbs. In, uh, in New York just now, the, um, the de Blasio uh, government there has introduced a similar congestion charge which... Strangely enough, with the support of uh, businesses, Uber and Amazon were apparently very supportive, but on the condition that I think the the revenue is hypothecated into public transport, would that be something that um, would be more palatable here? Look, I think uh, the first thing is we we are up for a discussion around how we can uh, uh, sensibly manage the, the use of our road network so that costs are effectively uh, born where they should most appropriately be born uh, in terms of uh, usage of the network. But we need to recognise that that simply cannot be uh, a charge upon uh, consumers in circumstances where uh, there is no alternative uh, uh, if people are still using uh, fuel and they're still being charged fuel excise. uh, If the and, and if those who are travelling longer distances because of their uh, material circumstances are being charged uh, disproportionately simply because they live in the outer suburbs, simply because, well, by and large, they tend to earn less in terms of income, uh, the worst thing to do would be to hit the uh, uh, the transport poor and make them even poorer. So in in, in principle, it's a... It's a the right way to go, but there needs to be a, a, a substantial discussion, is what you're saying, about how to protect the vulnerable in We've that. We've consistently that. said as a government, this is not part of our plans, but we are prepared to participate in a, uh, a national debate, uh, provided, of course, we're not simply finding a replacement tax for the Commonwealth. Uh, right. And I'd make this point. Um, uh, the only reason the Commonwealth collects fuel excise is because the High Court said 
the states couldn't do it. Right. Uh, any any alternative uh, to fuel excise, uh, given that it will be transported on state-owned roads uh, overwhelmingly, uh, should be divided between the states. And quite frankly, given the way that the GST operates, uh, I will be unlikely to sign up to a uh, process where the Commonwealth collects that money and divides it out. Uh, it'll have to be uh, divided on very transparent grounds. So uh, we have a very long way to go and there are a lot of uh, issues that I think uh, in terms of anybody who's genuinely concerned about the welfare of the taxpayer uh, rather than simply the joy of collecting more tax uh, would put front of mind. Final question from me. We mentioned earlier you've, you're sort of a an infrastructure minister by background. You have a very important role in infrastructure as treasurer and a much broader role, and you're on an infrastructure podcast. So what's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why? Oh, look, uh, I, I I know this is not going to be popular. Uh, well, it might be popular with you, Adrian, but my favourite <laughs> form of infrastructure is transport infrastructure. And in particular, uh, uh, people won't believe this, but public transport, Um because uh, I used to be a roads minister. The reason public transport is so important, it, it provides accessibility to economic opportunity for people who can't necessarily afford to travel to work over long distances. Um, uh, 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 the fact that we've been moving to higher and higher levels of investment towards public transport such that it is now uh, a much bigger recipient of state government effort uh, than it, it has achieved in the past is really a demonstration that um, uh, we've stepped up to the mark and said this is an important area that we have to give priority to, uh, not only in terms of its economic uh, equalisation opportunity, but because quite frankly in a growing economy with a growing population, the fastest growing uh, city in the nation, uh, we need to find ways of moving people and goods to where they need to be as quickly and efficiently as we can. And Do they let you cut the ribbon on any of them as treasurer? No, no, but I, I had my fair share and uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think it's only fair that I now step back to the younger and more eager generation in this, this government. Maybe you can photobomb one of them if they're in Werribee. I, I have been known to do that from time <laughs> to time, yeah, living the dream or living their dream. Treasurer Palace, thank you very much for your time today. We've also found out that you're a public transport enthusiast. So thank Don't you. Don't tell anybody about that. I've <laughs> kept that a secret for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much and thanks for your insights today. Good on you. Thanks, Treasurer. So that was Treasurer Tim Palace. Ilya, what do you think? thought it was a good discussion. Um, he certainly stayed on message as politicians have to do, but I think it was also clear that he... He came up during a very pragmatic period of unionism in Australia, trade unionism, during the Hawke and Keating era. And it also shows in Victoria's policy positions. There's, you know, they have a lot of privatised infrastructure running in parallel with a very substantial public investment program. It'd be interesting over the next few weeks to see the impact of the Commonwealth election on Victoria's infrastructure program because we've seen some projects announced. East West is the most notable one for me where the Commonwealth government have said they'll put $4 billion in to that project, but it's not considered to be a project by the state. Um, it'd be interesting to see how that flows through into the way the Victorians shape their infrastructure program over the coming months. No doubt you'll be updating that in your infrastructure pipeline. Yeah, infrastructurepipeline.org. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> Anytime. Um, well, that's it for today. 
Um, for our listeners, we hope you'll share this podcast with colleagues and anyone you think may be interested and leave us your reviews and feedback on iTunes or Spotify. We do have a few episodes, including this one lined up for release that we're, we'll, we're sure will be of great interest. So please make sure to subscribe as well. For now, thank you, Treasurer Tim Pallas, for being a guest on the show and Adrian, as always, for hosting with me. Thanks, Ilya. Inside Infrastructure is an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast sponsored by PwC Australia, hosted by Adrian Dwyer and Ilya Zak. The show is produced by TAG, PwC Australia's media agency. This episode was produced by Adam Stevens, with research for the episode done by Yosra Alawadi, Linda Bergerson, and Mitch Dudley. You can subscribe to future episodes of the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.